Acts chapter 19, verse 11 to 20. I've put up 22 there. We might look at the last two verses if we have time. If not, then we'll, we'll just skip that. This is, the, this is Paul's second missionary journey. For those of you who have not joined us, I'm going to go quick just to bring you up to date. That pink or orange or whatever your eyes tells you that is, that's Asia. If you see the red line there, that's the journey that Paul took through Asia and God muzzled him. That's why the title to magnified or muzzled or magnified. That's Paul's second missionary journey. In other words, God's, God essentially prevented Paul from preaching the gospel in Asia. Okay? Very important to remember that. But he travels... He travels on and in this area over here, this is Europe actually, there he meets some people, he meets a couple, Priscilla and Aquila, and on his way back towards Jerusalem, he stops over in Ephesus and he leaves Priscilla and Aquila, their disciples that he had made, and he, um, he continues on with his journey to Jerusalem. Then he comes back and on his third missionary journey, now he comes back from Antioch, and this time he goes in the middle of Asia and he goes directly to Ephesus where he, left, um, where he left Priscilla and Aquila. By the time that he arrives there, Priscilla and Aquila, they've been busy with ministry. They've taught Apollos, for example, the gospel uh, accurately. And I think they've probably been busy with some other things. But Paul arrives there and then he finds 12 men, 12 Asiatic Jews. These are the guys that we spoke about last week. And he teaches them the gospel properly. And they get baptized, right? So now, what do you have there in Ephesus? You have a church going there. Priscilla and Aquila have been uh, teaching there. Uh, Paul have been, has been uh, preaching there now when he arrived there. So um, the text says that Paul then went into the synagogue and he debated with his Jews for about three months, I think it is, and then they, they didn't kick him out. He decided to leave with, with the Christians. So they leave and they go to the school of Tyrannus. And at the school of Tyrannus, they spend two years, and this is what the text says, this went on for two years. Sorry, at the school of Tyrannus, the church, the Christians, are having dialogue. They're having discussions about the word for two years. So that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Let me take us back so that you can see the map. Everybody here heard the word of the Lord, according to the text. That's like... And I think... When I, look at, when I look at the date, it's about a five-year gap. When Paul, when Paul went into Asia the first time, into that area, he didn't preach at all. Five years later, he goes into the same area, and this time, everybody hears the word of the Lord. Now, that is an incredible text. And the first question that comes to my mind is, okay, Paul, well, how did you get that right? How did you get it right to let everybody hear about this? Because we know of Priscilla and Aquila. We, Apollos had left. He's gone to Corinth. We don't know of any other Christians there. We know that Paul preached when he arrived there. And then we know that for three months he preached in a synagogue. And, and we know that um, th there was this teaching taking place and these 12 guys that were converted. So with that little team of his, he conquered the whole of Asia. How did he do that? I believe that the, the verses we're going to deal with tonight gives us an explanation. It's sort of the text. We're going to deal with a rough text tonight, really cool text. It gives us an explanation of how this spread. And as I, as I was reflecting on this, I just want to share this with us. I think, remember now, 
The first time Paul went in, God said, don't say anything. Don't preach. Now, when he goes again, God says, open the floodgates. What is going on? Five years later. And I want to remind you that God does things in his own timing. I want to remind you that God knows when the fruit is ripe for harvest. You can't go pick fruit when it's not ready yet. That's why when you talk about talking to our friends about Jesus, it might not be the best idea this year. It might only be in five years' time when it's the best idea. If you, if you pick them too early, you will bruise the fruit. Don't bruise the fruit. Don't push Jesus on people that's not ready for it. Don't force people to come to church if they're not ready for it. Right? You will know when they're hungry and ready. We have multiple people that we are busy working with, that we are trying to connect with. And we, we, we don't push any of them to come to church. And the people that have come to church have come because they are ready. And you've met one of the families here this morning. So when the time is right, God will give you the necessary tool to make the harvest happen. We don't have to push anything. We are just faithful to Jesus. And at the right time, man, it's going to be so easy to just uh, pull that, that, that fruit. Also, I want you to know that God leaves no man behind. Because you might say, I mean, let's say, for example, you're Paul. Paul is going through Asia, and God says, you're not going to preach to anybody. It's like, God, I thought you, you said you wanted everybody to hear about you. Why don't you want me to talk for you? And God's like, don't worry, man. I'm not going to leave anybody behind. But these people aren't ready. They'll be 100% ready in five years' time, but not now. You go ahead, because I need... I hear people calling me from Macedonia. People are looking for me in Macedonia. You need to get there. And if you remember the story, he stopped over in Troas. He had the dream overnight and he went into Europe and he preached the gospel powerfully in Philippi, in, in Corinth, Thessalonica and all those places. All right. God knows who's looking for him. All right. So there's a time for everything. So as I read the text, I, I feel that it's accurate to suggest two reasons why the message spread so well. Why everybody heard. First one is miracles. And the second is fear. God instilled fear in the people. And we'll talk about that. So let's get into the text. Are you ready? So just after he says, everybody had heard about this, this is the following verse. Verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick. And the illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left him. This, this is the most powerful miracles that you can imagine. This isn't Paul touching people. This is at a totally different level. The, text, the Greek says extraordinary, special miracles. So it's like... The dynamite, remember the Holy Spirit's dynamite, right? Dunamis, the power that comes from God, right? This isn't TNT, ladies and gentlemen. This is C4. I did a little bit of research on that. C4 is apparently a little bit worse than TNT. It makes a bigger impact. It's like the Holy Spirit comes and says, listen, Paul, I'm going to breathe more into you so that you can do incredible things in my name. So God upgraded the Holy Spirit's power in Paul's life. Let me take you to the next level, man. Why? I believe because Ephesus was ready. Ephesus was ready and Asia was ready. The people were hungry. The time had come to make an impact. And this power was so effective, 
Listen to this. That if you touch the things that Paul touched, you could be healed. That's another level. Paul was on fire. Jesus was in him physically, using him physically. God heals through aprons and napkins. Who'd like, who'd like to touch this thing because I touched it? Look at this thing. It's pretty useless. But not for these guys. If Paul touched this thing, I touch it and I get healed. That's incredible, incredible power. Now what was a napkin used for? To wipe sweat off your face. The same word used for napkin is the same thing that was covering Jesus' face in the tomb that was neatly folded. Same, same Greek word. And an apron protects you from food that spills onto it. So I wonder if there were guys hanging around Paul's little tent or house. Yet he touched that thing. He just wiped the sweat off. Yet I'm going to steal that thing. Run and go. Heal people with it. Can you imagine how that worked out? Similar things was done by Jesus. Think about it for a moment. The woman that was bleeding for 12 years, she came through the crowd and she just wanted to touch the hem of his garment. She'd been bleeding menstrually for 12 years. Now the ladies here would know that's horrible. And she was healed instantaneously. There's a man in the book of Mark that couldn't speak properly or hear properly. Jesus comes to him, pulls him aside, and he plugs him. <laughs> I've actually never read this. It was cool today to just look at that. He plugs his ears, puts his fingers in his ears, and spits on his tongue. <laughs> I was like, well, the text isn't that clear about it, but it's, it just says that he took spit and he touched his tongue. Like, Give me your tongue, bro, and I'm going to give you some of mine, you know. And the man starts talking and he hears. John chapter 9 talks about a guy that is blind. Jesus stoops down into the soil and he spits, right? And he makes a little bit of a mud. And he takes that mud with his spit and he rubs it on his eyes and he's healed. This type of miracle of you touch something and if it touches something, somebody else, it's healed. That's stuff that only Jesus could do. That's brand new for the, for the apostles. Very, very unique. Now, I was thinking about this. Why was Paul the person that God did this with? Why did God use Paul? Paul was God's instrument. The thought that came to my mind was this. God wanted Paul to gain credibility with the people because he had credibility with God. God trusted Paul with the message of the gospel. And he entrusted Paul with that message. And if you remember, we've said this from the beginning, the miracles were done as signs. It was done to make people sober, to bring people to attention, to cause them to listen to what the apostle says. So it was specifically the Apostle Paul. The power was specifically in him because he had personally come in contact with Jesus Christ. He had the true gospel. So imagine there's a town and there's an apostle and people are listening to him and people are doubting whether they should listen to him or not. If he has this power that's presented through the touching of aprons that healing takes place, for example, you would go listen to what this guy's got to say. And that's really what God is after. We've spoken that, about that a few times. And I was wondering about something. How long after Paul touched the napkin 
Do you think the power stops? <laughs> what do you think? Who'd like to guess? A year? It burns. How do you destroy the napkin that Paul touched that no longer has the power? Oh, I don't think there's any better answer, my brother. I don't think. For however long God wants to use it for its intended purpose. Would you agree with that? The power isn't this thing. The power is God who's decided to give it power. That's where it lies. And so God decides when he takes the power, it would, it would carry power until the mission has been fulfilled. Because that's the purpose of it. Um, the miracles aided the mission. The miracles were not the mission. The miracles was there to assist the mission. So we've got to go back to the mission. What's the mission? Jesus wants the whole of Asia to hear the message. And He's going to make it happen no matter what. Whether He uses napkins or whatever, He's going to make it happen and it will be done. So Paul was not interested in performing miracles. We look at this thing and we think, wow, that's incredible. Do you think Paul sat at home and he's like thinking, I'm an incredible man. I touch stuff, people touch it, and they are healed. Do you think he ever thought that? Or do you think he thought, God, you're incredible. Thank you. Thank you for helping me proclaim your message. That's what he thought. It's about you. It's about the cross. And it's about people connecting with you. It's not about the miracle. And I say that because it's such a powerful contrast to what we find in Pentecostal churches today where the only thing that matters is the power and the miracles and not the gospel. All right. God establishes the credibility of His servants through miracles. This is something that came to my mind. I don't know if it was this week with Wes. I spent some time with Wes and we were just talking about in our day and age how difficult it is to connect with people with the gospel. It's very difficult. Um, and we sort of concluded that I don't, think it, I don't think the methodology has changed that much. In the first century, God endowed the Christians with incredible power and miracles instantaneously to give them instantaneous credit with people. You're walking down the road and Jack is standing here and Jack says, Hey man, have you heard of Jesus? Yeah, I don't want to believe in your Jesus. Okay, well let me heal your son quickly. And then you heal his son and he's like, okay, I would like to hear about Jesus. It's instantaneous credibility. He's going to believe what you say when you do the miracle. Right? We've got friends and family members who's not interested in Jesus. Right? The question is, how do we do it today? How does it work today? Now, it's a whole discussion to go back and say, well, in the first century, I believe God used extraordinary miracles because it was an extraordinary challenge to take the gospel into a world that's never heard about a guy that hung on, hung on a cross. So that's the measure that God used in the first century. I don't believe God uses that measure today. But I do believe that God still uses miracles today. But here's the miracle. You ready for it? You. You want to build credibility with people? Show them that you like unlike anybody they've ever met. Show your friends that you care and have grace in a way that nobody has ever seen. That's what's going to give you credibility. 
Show them that you will love them more than anybody they've ever met in their lives. Speak the truth boldly like they've never met anybody else in their lives. Show them that you are just a different type of human. The same way that they look to Jesus. And you, people look at Jesus, they can't understand how he would be God and go down a cross like a slave. Make himself lower than a human. That is incredible. Because the greatest miracle in this world is a person that's saved from sin to righteousness. A person that deserves hell and suddenly gets heaven. That is what our people in our community needs to see. And here's the difference. And we spoke ex extensively about it this week. In our time, it takes longer to build credibility. It takes weeks. It takes months. It takes years of relationship, of spending time, of having coffee with your neighbor, of caring about the person that lives down the street, of making connections with the people that your kids do sport with. It takes time. But it's the same formula. God establishes the credibility of His servants through miracles. The only thing now is, is that the miracle is you having a relationship with Him and loving people deeply. That's my opinion, my understanding of this. Now, let's just recap that the extraordinary miracles were focused on demons and diseases. That's what the text says. That they would take the, the napkin and demons would be driven out if they t touched it. I don't know what they did. You know, a demon-possessed person comes, you throw him in the head with a napkin. Out of him. Maybe that's how they did it. I don't know. Now, keep in mind that for years, for generations, people have been battling with demons. This isn't a new thing. Everybody was looking for solutions to drive out demons. Even the Jews had special exorcists dedicated to driving out demons. You can go read about that. I'm going to read you some stuff now. But if you want a scriptural reference, Matthew chapter 12 is 27. Jesus uh, is being accused of driving out demons by the power of demons. And then Jesus turns around to them and says, Okay, by what power is your guys doing it then? Talking about the Pharisees. The Pharisees had special guys. Man, they were like experts at driving out demons. So Josephus... Josephus was a first century historian, and he writes about some of these demon guys. I'm just going to, oh, I'm going to read you some of it, what he says. Josephus, and he speaks here about Solomon, and he says something that we don't find in the Bible, but he says that Solomon had the skill by which demons are expelled, and that he had left behind him the manner of using exorcism, by which they are cast out. In other words, he says, Josephus is telling us that the great King Solomon, while he was on earth, left behind methodologies on how to drive out demons. Right? And here is some of it. Um, I've seen a certain man of my own country whose name was Eleazar, releasing people that were demoniacs in the presence of Vespasian, his sons, his captains, and the whole multitude of his soldiers. The manner of cure was this. So he, now he's going to explain to us how they would drive out demons. He put a ring that had a root of one of those sorts mentioned by Solomon. I'm not sure what that looks like. To the nostrils of the demoniac. So you can imagine in a room, here's the demon-possessed guy. You take a ring, a specific ring. Apparently Solomon knows what it looks like. You put it by the guy's nose, by the demoniac. 
after which he drew out the demon through the nostrils. So the demon comes out through the nostrils. And when the, when the man fell down, immediately he adjured him to return into him no more, making still mention of Solomon and reciting the in, incantations that he had composed. So there's, there's ritual, there's, there's a ring by the nose, and there's all kinds of words that you say, right? And when Eleazar would persuade the spectators that he had such power, and I was saying, guys, I, I can actually drive out demons, he said in a little distance a cup of water and commanded the demon as he went out of the man to overturn the cup of water. And when this was done, the skill and wisdom of Solomon was showed manifestly. Now, now, Josephus is writing this. Do you get the picture? Ring by the nose, incantations, a cup of water. When the demon comes out to prove that he's driving out demons, the cup of water will fall over by itself. These are the kinds of things that happen in the first century when this was taking place. And even before this, Jews following all kinds of teachings and ways, written in parchments, all kinds of all kinds of incantations and curses and things to drive out demons. The whole ancient world wanted to figure out how to drive out demons. Now keep that in mind. Right? Now imagine you are an exorcist in the first century and you live in Ephesus. Imagine. And you read the newspaper or you wake up in the morning and look on Facebook. Strange guy down the street, very poor, preaches about a guy who hung on a cross, drives out demons with napkins. What would you do? Brew, we need to this guy. We need to interview him. How does he do it? Because apparently everywhere demons are being driven out. Through napkins and aprons. We've got all of these potions and cups and rings and words and parchments and incantations. We've got to go figure out how this guy does it so we can figure out how to do it. Let's go do it the way that he does it. Make sense? Well, there's a group of people exactly like that. Look at what the text says further. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits, that's what they did. That was what they, they were vagabonds tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. Just pause there for a moment. You know the story. So they realized among the, along the grapevine, oh, the way that he does it is the name of Jesus. That's how he does it. The name of Jesus. That's what drives out these demons. Okay? They would say, in the name of of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priests, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, <laughs> and Paul I know about, but who are you? Who, who are you exactly, bro? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. They need to make a movie about this. This needs to be a scene in a movie. What a wrestling match. One guy against seven. And they all leave naked and bleeding. The formula. 
These guys have found the formula. Jesus is the power. But look at that word, tried. They weren't successful with the formula. I wonder what went wrong. The formula was simple. The power lies in the name of Jesus. That is how Paul does it. They tried to use it, but they had no success. The name of Jesus was a solution to them, not a savior for them. Jesus was a formula for success, not a savior for the soul. This is very important to mention because for many people in this world, they see Jesus exactly the same way. Jesus is not their savior. He's a formula. People say, yeah, Jesus is a good way to live. Yeah. Going to church, yeah, that's, that's a good way to, to do things, but he's not my savior. He's the right formula, but he's not my Lord. They did not preach the gospel and therefore did not experience the power of the gospel. They didn't go into the house of that demoniac to go and teach him about Christ. They were not on a mission for the gospel. They were just trying to be cool, driving out demons in the name of Judaism. Therefore, the Spirit didn't go with them. They carried the name of Jesus with them, but did not carry Jesus in them. They were not converted. They were not Christians. They were not disciples. They were Jews. They preached the name. Listen carefully. They preached the name of a Lord. They did not submit to themselves. Listen carefully. They go to the demon and say to him, in the name of Jesus, submit, man. And the demon looks back at them and says, you don't even submit to him, bro. You don't even bow down to him. Because if you did, I would have known you. They came to the house of a demon-possessed man without any power. And the demon is like, dudes, dudes, you made a mistake coming here. You came in the wrong door, man. You are nothing. And you carry no power. And you have no authority. No authority here. That's why I just smile at people that, that go on about teaching. They know what's happening in the spiritual, in the spiritual world. They got power over demons. <laughs> you are nothing. And so he, he, says, he says to them, I know Jesus and I'm acquainted with Paul. That's interesting. He uses two different Greek words there. I know him, gnosis. I know Jesus. It's like I've got a, I, I know exactly who he is. And Paul, I'm acquainted with. How would you feel if a demon says that about you? I'm acquainted with Tom. You'd be like, geez, dude, where did you see me? Did you hear about me? What, what are you thinking about me? You know? But who are you? I know nothing about you. Um, this to me is a frightening passage. Non-Christians are empty vessels. They carry no power. And insignificant to demons. You mean nothing, man. You're nothing. If Jesus isn't in you, you're nothing. You're nothing in the spiritual world. You can do nothing. This, listen, this, this needs to sink in. When Jesus says, listen, I'm going to send my spirit and, you'll, and I'll be in you, we underestimate the power of that. You are not safe without Christ in you. It's like, it's like 
The, the unbeliever is a no-name brand. People who are, who are at war in this world with the gospel are known by the demons. How do we know that? Well, Satan knew Job very well, didn't he? And then, the, the, this is interesting, the demon, I'll give you the original language, the demon leaped on them, overcame them, which that Greek word means lord against, subjugate, dominate. The demon-possessed man dominated seven other men, and the text says prevailed, which means he overpowered them. He was stronger than them. That's embarrassing, wouldn't you say? One guy against seven. And spiritual terms, it's pathetic. You know what it's also like showing when I think about it? It's like, it's like the demon is saying, bro, my spiritual power is far superior than your, your Jewish stuff that you're bringing here. Without Jesus in you, you have no power against demons. The demons shudder in the presence of Jesus, but they smile in the presence of empty vessels. Well, let's see what happens when the rest of the town hears about this story. It would have made the headlines with us, wouldn't it? Let's see what the rest of the town says. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. You see that? The name of Jesus. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the, the, the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, which is a lot of money. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The text says, when the people heard about the story, they feared but the name of the Lord was held in high honor in the Greek, mega luno, which means magnified, to make great. That's where we get the word megaphone from. That situation in the house was a megaphone message to the whole of Ephesus. You don't mess with Jesus. People seek to perform miracles to feel good about themselves, to magnify themselves. But true spiritual warfare, success, always magnifies Jesus. I think the sobering thought was, oh my goodness, demons are very real. They respect Paul and Jesus, not just anybody, so be careful. Respect Paul. Respect the name of Jesus because even the demons do. Don't play around or take these guys lightly. So let's go back to Paul. Let's go think of what he says. Let's listen to what he says. He says what? Repent. Turn away from your evil ways. Turn away from incantations and sorcery and all of those practices. And what do the people do? Well, the first thing is they confess their sins. Beautiful. Proverbs 28, 13. People who conceal their sins will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. So they open up, their, sorry, they confess their sins. And what do the people do with curious arts? They burn 
all of these scrolls. And I want you to think about this for a moment. <laughs> what do you think was in these scrolls? I think many of these scrolls was all of those incantations and those formulas to drive out demons. Josephus writes about that. This was full on Ephesus. And other scrolls was about sorcery. All kinds of things dealing with demons. And they brought it and they burnt it. Why? Because when you realize <laughs> vividly in front of you, all I need is Jesus, you can just burn the rest. If Jesus is all you need, why do you need all of this stuff? A ring, a cup of water, all kinds of fancy words. Hmm. All you need is a napkin, man, with the name of Jesus on it. That's all you need. This is a big deal. So these guys come, they bring their scrolls. Now, you've got to remember, for in case those who don't know, they did not have hunters in those days. These were handwritten copies from generation to generation to generation. You actually cannot put value on it. You, you can't actually measure how valuable these scrolls were. These were traditions that have come for hundreds of years, recorded formulas on sorcerous practices. And they brought that. They didn't have you know, USB disks to save the information. No. When it was burned in the first century, it was burnt forever. They burnt it. That is true sold out Christianity. Burn everything. All you need is Jesus. Now, the last verse there I'll close off with intrigues me particularly. There's a word there in the original language that says the Word of God grew and overpowered. That's a, verse, a word that appears in verse 16. The same thing the demons did to the, to the sons of Siva is the same thing that the Word did to Asia. Overpowered it, dominated it, and took it over. So you have this juxtaposition in the story through the Holy Spirit in the text. Demons that overpower and dominate those who don't know Christ. And the message of Christ and those who carry the message of Christ dominates over the realm of the demons. So, concluding thought is this. With Jesus, you overcome the world. Without Jesus, the demons overcome you. The power is in Jesus.